0: so the new twitter is buggy man it's buggy i like it i, I like it i like the design and I, and I like it but it's um it has bugs what is buggy is this like a the data fetching high follower count or high whatever bugs oh i'm not there man you're not there no not there not until the that it's like you have a k in it somewhere <laughs> yeah um I posted a question like a newbie react question and and it was like 30 minutes later i get so distracted by twitter so i have to like turn it off sometimes i have the self-control app that i use to literally block it but um this one, I was just curious it was the like some key thing with like a list and react unique keys and i asked kind of a newbie question i knew the answer in some sense but i wanted to You know, I I was still confused about it, so I asked it. What was the question? And I was like, I knew people were going to respond. I knew that's the kind of thing. Sometimes you tweet out something, and you know, it's you know, within fifteen seconds, there's going to be like three replies. So when I went back thirty minutes later, and I didn't have anyone who had replied to me, and then I checked my notifications, and it was all the old stuff. I was like, "Mm, I'm not sure. I hit reply, and I was like, I'm pretty sure this is like Twitter.com, you know, bug. And I like refreshed, refreshed. <clears throat> and I had to do like a command shift R refresh and then like my old notifications loaded and all of a sudden bloop And then there was like eight new notifications So that was interesting. This reminds me of an Aziz joke. I saw Aziz do stand-up like years ago
1: Yeah before he was I think he was like popular. I knew who he was. Yeah, but I don't think he was at the level He is now it was at. Um, what's the comedy place? Yeah comedy seller uh, comedy seller Yeah, and he was talking about how you like you send a girl a text message and then she doesn't reply. And it's like, oh, what's wrong with my phone? Is the network down? What's going on? It's like the, the only time you
0: ever think of this. So that's that's I wrote a tweet and no one replied. What's wrong with Twitter? Twitter must be buggy. I actually saw his new his new stand-up on Netflix. It was pretty funny. That's good. It was pretty funny. Um <laughs> but uh no i was right i was right so it wasn't that the girl didn't respond i knew that there was plenty of girls out there who was were sending me little emoji hugs and kisses um the tweet was why doesn't react default to using index as a unique key in lists come on that's you know that's why i get responses yeah wait but you know how so when you do like a I'm writing like a dynamic table of contents because that's what I do every time I build an SPA for the last 10 years. Um, And uh, you just want to go over my dynamic nav, map each one to an LI, right? And then React is going to render it, but it's going to complain. It's going to give you a big red warning in the console. Um, It's going to say, every child in a list needs a unique key. And so you go and you do key equals, you know, item.title or... Index or item. Id or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that was the bug, and that was my question. Why doesn't it? Use yeah, index? because in Ember, we don't do that. We don't. Like, I think. When's the last time you passed in key to a list of things in Ember in a I, template? When I'm banging my head against a list. I think in Ember, Ember defaults to like it like marks the object, right? I think. I think one time Tom said he he literally said that there's a template transform that rewrites it to have as index and then key equals index curly curly index so i think it's literally I doing a was, default right was, of an index i
1: thought it was id i thought the index index thing uh, seems buggy
0: yeah i get why it's buggy but maybe it's id so maybe okay. it's a, actually that's what chris freeman said on twitter he said by default it's not index is a reference to the object or something so, like yeah that. i think it like
1: goods for the object mm. and then it uses that to try i'm i'm currently yeah. in an ember app and i'm fighting something like this where i have like an array of of the hash helper yeah and that's like regenerating yeah and it's causing my whole list to re-render interesting because those things those those objects aren't stable and so i'm that i
0: don't want to get into the weeds but yeah, i'm, yeah, I'm yeah. currently dealing with interesting something like but i've like don't think i've ever had a bug where it's been fixed by doing key equals I've just, i don't think i've ever had to key. do that
1: you know I, I would say that every time i run t- into this in Ember, it actually reminds me that most of the time I'm itching over models. Models, and those are... And I, those, yeah. Have identity. They're stable. They're stable, which is really nice. It's super nice. And like... The, turns the,
0: out object stability and object and referential <laughs> stability... Is a good thing. Is a good thing. As we've been banging our heads this morning against um, unstable references with React hooks. Yeah. It's kind of interesting, right? Yeah. You wouldn't really understand that until you went through the pain points of it. But um, there's certainly nice things about this dot or whatever being stable or having your data in a separate layer from the rendering. Um, So um, yeah, it just seems like one of those things. It's like, why? So I I totally understand why a list needs, children in a list need identity if you remove the third one, how do you know to re-render and be smart about re-rendering and all that stuff. But um, in this case, I just had a static list. And I think a lot of times you have a static list because if you give me a static list of data and you like each over it or map over, it, it's just like, I just want to render it. And I'm using, to me, it's weird that you go from like LI, LI getting started, LI installation, LI overview. And then I just want to put like those things in an array and map them to LI. And now I have to do key. That feels like a weird step.
1: I agreed. I, w- I would think the default would be some no key,
0: and super inefficient. So if the list changes, you're going to lose everything and, and re-render. Or it's like actually buggy, um, but like it tells you when it's buggy. Or yeah, yeah, super inefficient. Why not start there, right? Yeah. Now the default is index. It does render. It actually does work. But I think there's it can be buggy. But then I, it warns you. It gives you a warning. But the warning is like you have to fix this. It's like super red. <laughs> it's, it's not like it's not like we've de-optimized your build because the pack package size is 900 kilobytes or whatever <laughs> it's like uh you're doing react wrong yeah yeah any any write in the console yeah. while you're developing is, yeah. is you're fixing it right away yeah exactly interesting so what did you do did you just add a key of title key equals um yeah item i did like item dot title it's like a string but like i've had to do this every time now i every <laughs> every react we've built a total of four react apps now and because they've all involved lists we've really literally run into the edge cases with hooks and things like this and it bothers me it's just annoying yeah um but i get it but it just feels weird it feels like if first of all, if the default is to use index, and that that default gets you, it's like what we were talking about the last two weeks, right? It's like if the default gets you there, and maybe becomes a hot path at one point that you need to fix. That's fine, but for now, if it works and it works, let me keep going. Like those are the kinds of things that just like slow you down. Is the is the point of the warning is that they can only recognize this is going to be a problem at render
1: time, so they need to warn I you think there. So because like imagine they had a, an observer on the array, and they could say something like. Hey, this array is right. used in a list and you're changing it so now you should fix this index thing right but if they can't know that and the only like
0: but yeah if it never changes like who cares i know but arrays arrays change i mean no, array, they're data structured like no it's a static data structure it's like i and, have like in your case it yeah is, it but, is but but, but and, and also in like lots of cases
1: and a lot of times when i'm rendering lists i'm like fetching things from the server yeah a lot of in. times adding new things or moving things. Sometimes,
0: not when you're building a table of contents that doesn't change. Also, why not, like I would like a lint
1: rule here. Yeah. But maybe that's hard. Maybe you have to like evaluate the code to know that.
0: Oh yeah, why doesn't it have a lint that just says key equals? But they can look at your. But they may, they might have to evaluate
1: the code because if you like have, oh, but a, they can lint... have a map that then renders
0: a component and there's like some <laughs> dynamic pieces there. And... But what if you're rendering an li and the only attribute you have is like class name or something like that. Also, I hate class name because now I go back to like Ember templates no, and, I, no. and I start doing class name and then it doesn't work. It really bothers me. I think, can't you use class names in Ember? I think <laughs> that still works. <laughs> we should make a thing that lets you use class names in React so that you use class names everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. Um, anyway, so I found that was weird. But, um, no, React is fun. You said uh, this week one point you were like, oh, man, I miss handlebars or like I love writing hand- handlebars templates right now. You're yeah. like happy to be back in a template. Yeah. It's kind of nice, right? It's like a kind of a, it's kind of like its own environment. It's kind of like you feel safe when you're in a handlebars template. There's something about that.
1: That. Yes. Nailed it. Like you definitely feel safe. You're not thinking about how is this thing rendering? How is this thing re-rendering? Just given this data, this is a display of the data. Stale state, you know, yep. none of that, none yep. of that stuff. Yeah, I like the thing the things I really like about handlebars are um, so the angle brackets with the at sign, you know, properties versus attributes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, That's mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm, that's that's mm -hmm. nice clarity. And then like F statement. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I don't ask for a lot here. Come on. (laughs) That's
0: not true. No, it's true. That's funny. So we were um, playing around with React this morning and um we were, we hit this like stale state bug and we were doing some Googling. And um, when hooks first came out, Ryan Florence had this tweet that was kind of like, people keep throwing around um, set interval example with hooks as kind of some smear in, in, in hooks. eye, like um, it, because it's an easy way to run into stale state using react hooks. And the answer is like, Oh, you're not thinking about this right or whatever. Um, which is like, I get what he's saying, but it's also kind of lame to say that because it's just, there's a reason people are running into it. It's violating some of their expectations, right? People aren't stupid. It's just, and I get it. There's a new paradigm you have to learn, but even still, um, we've, we've also been critical of Ember for that stuff. So it's, it's not fair for,
1: we would never say, Oh, you're just not doing it the Ember way. Right. So right, we have to, yes,
0: we have to live by this. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, we can cast blame in all directions. Um, so uh, um, it's the back to this whole thing where you have this like, free-floating variable and you, you set interval or set timeout, which when called plucks, the f- creates a function which plucks state at the time it's called and puts it onto, what is it like the, what's the part of JavaScript that's not really part of JavaScript, is the event loop? That's like not actually part of the core JavaScript engine. But just like how callbacks run yes. in an environment, not like not part of the JavaScript language. It's not part of the runtime. It's not even yeah. Because JavaScript it is, is part like of the single
1: ti- threaded. It's like part of the runtime in the sense that yeah, VA, the environment no, they all have yes. this. But like JavaScript, the language makes no JavaScript, the language it has no it notion doesn't. of a yeah. that of that. And didn't you actually work?
0: set interval and set time? Aren't even they're not even JavaScript language features? Surprisingly, they are part of like the APIs time. from the from the environment whether it's the event loop in the browser or like libuv in node or whatever.
1: Didn't you you worked on an app once that did not
0: have yeah. it was a javascript app with no with literally no event loop. It was Apple TV. It was an Apple TV app. So when you build Apple TV you have like the equivalent of V8 and then like you bring in a library that calls like set timeout because it's javascript, right? And it like didn't work. and it's like oh, you don't have set timeout in Apple TV. <laughs> it's like what? Yeah, that was super weird javascript is so weird man right isn't it so weird and like all this bundling stuff we've been dealing with it's like crazy so um um when you call set interval the function's created and then like this is kind of how i started making sense of it which is like you have this thing over here right which is like the event loop and like that function which refers via a closure to a, a value at that point is on the event loop and then like React's going to keep rerunning the render function a million times whenever it wants to, and so even if you're changing the state over here, like this is not changing because there's no there's no connection between these two anymore. Yep. That's the thing. Yep. There's no reference. There's no reference. It is, yeah. There's no um, reference. There's there's nothing connecting the two. Um. So. That's why you can run into stale state when doing things like asynchronous callbacks, which, you know, Dan Abramov has this wonderful post about explaining this and some solutions and thinking in hooks and all this stuff. But that's, that is a confusing point. And then, you know, you can use a ref. That's the other kind of confusing thing is like refs and react are like these constant references and they're used to be to get a hold of a, a handle on a DOM element, but really they're like more general than that. They're like about stability and stuff. And so, um, there's a lot of times you reasonably want to be able to have a stable reference to something. And uh, one way to solve this problem is to use a ref so that the function that you create still has a pointer back. And when it invokes, it actually is like going to ask the current context for that thing. So then we were like, well, why not always do that? But then you quickly get away from a lot of the benefits of the, the design of hooks, right? But it's kind of like from a design perspective, you kind of want that. You kind of want like one way to do it and you never hit unexpected things. It's like weird that there's two ways to call a set state. In my mind, that's weird too. That's like a concession of the API. Yeah. Um, and then um, now there's basically like you can conceive of two ways of getting things too, right? There's two ways of call set state and then those, there's like you can just get a variable if you just get it with a free variable like a reference or you could like imagine encapsulating all this logic in a new version that's like instead of just count, you get like get count. And then if you get count, that's another way to have a reference to this thing that's on like the event loop stack so that it gets the fresh version of the state there. And then it's like, well, why can't we always do that? Um, And then like, we're like kind of, why does this never happen in Ember? And then you realize it's because like in Ember, uh, all the data is on a property on this object. And this is like a stable object reference. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many times like the template is re-rendering or whatever. You can always just like this dot foo, which is why you can call like this dot set count five and then like this dot count and it's going to be right because like there's no reconcile you know it's just an object reference thing or whatever yeah yeah i guess too like ember could if it wanted to delay that set but it it yeah. doesn't
1: it thinks of it it's like you said it's a stable object
0: it could if it want to but it's not it's not by design it doesn't it also cannot whereas by the design of hooks just by the fact that you get literally a javascript variable that could be a primitive it, you don't get it Yep, and we realized it wasn't even just that it was primitive. I think we thought first it was like, oh yeah, if count is just a boolean, like the function is going to close over that boolean and it's like not going to have a reference. But even if the state is an an object, as soon as you call set state, you're you're done because you've replaced the object, yep. and exactly. so you no yeah. longer have a stable reference. Which is why use ref exists. Stable reference is a really good, yeah. really good way to phrase it. Yeah, yep. So it's not about primitives, which I think I was confused about. Um, it's about having a stable reference to a state that survives re-renders, and um, as soon as you call set state. And then if you use state with an object, and you just do like object.count equals 10, the problem there is that the app is not gonna re-render because React doesn't know anything's changed. Right. So in that case, you would get the right value, but your thing wouldn't re-render, like in the alert message or whatever. So that was just all kind of interesting learning the things there. It made me want to look more at Svelte, I feel like Svelte tried to, some of the arguments for hooks was the composability argument, which is totally valid, but then also like simplicity, which is like working with variables and functions and avoiding this. And to me, some of that, you lose the benefits of some of that with some of the edge cases that we've run into, which might not even be edge cases. It's really more just like the, okay, fa- the fact that we've hit this and we're not reactive developers. Yeah, yeah. And we keep hitting this yeah. is, is tells me that. Yeah. It's just part of what you have to learn. It's yes. part of the API. It's a React model. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And it feels kind of like a bummer. Um, and I think maybe the, the Svelte approach, like you could imagine um, let count, set count equals use state, and then all that stuff. If you had a compiler step that like turned it into objects, it, those c- could maintain the um, reference there could be a stable reference there such that it always pointed to what you would think of. Like if you were working in Excel document and it would just be always what you think. Yeah. I think that's kind of what Svelte is going for. So that's kind of an interesting thing where it's like reacts trying to meet people where they're at. It's like JavaScript. Svelte is like not, it, it is JavaScript, but it's also like, I don't, I don't It's not really JavaScript. It's kind of like, it's like its own language. You're, you're saying this because there's a compile step. There's that, a compiler step that changes it. So like when you do like let X, equals and then you do like dollar x i mean you're still writing valid javascript code but what it does is like very different um different enough that you're effectively learning a new um like domain specific language basically um so maybe that's a better maybe that's better if you're going to say if you're going to say we have to get rid of this we have to get you know uh we, we we want to just use functions and and variables um and like the benefits of like lexical scope and closure we want those and but still be able to do all this reactivity stuff then maybe like you need to go to a compiler or something like that but it also reminds me that like it also makes me think of just like doesn't seem like it's going to be it's like elm right it's like a one step before elm it's like oh we have to solve this at this but then like no one's going to use elm everyone's writing javascript so yep. then makes me think like no let's figure it out let's meet the developers where they're at yep. you know so it's just kind of interesting I guess one of the
1: questions is like are we are we sure that the benefits of hooks outweigh the downsides like maybe like ember in ember components we don't okay the composability in ember components is is rough. Yeah. Right, it's rough. Yep. But not in the template system, right. but in the actual component javascript file. Um, right. But man, having a, this reference and just being able to set state on it and pluck state off it yeah. is like Pretty nice and super nice so like maybe the trade-off in going to these these hooks is not yeah maybe we do this for a while and we 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 end up
0: so i guess we should say that in your case you ended up doing like a use yeah so out. this is the thing so i think part of the argument for hooks so there's two things i, I want to say in response to what you just said first is like when we actually coded this we're like okay we made kind of like we you we ended up creating a ref and using an effect to make sure that our like callback was synced with the data as it changed so that no matter uh what the data happened if there was something on the event loop that was going to happen in three seconds if the state ever changed we like synced the callback with the state change which is like the whole mental model behind how hooks let you sync con- uh effects with state just like old react let you sync rendering with state like rendering in state has always been in sync by design because you just put like curly count and like boom react takes care of that inner html is always going to be in sync with your state and now with hooks and like use effect you have a chance to do that for like callbacks that's kind of like the the high level that's like the big idea but it's like confusing and it's hard and like there's parts where it violates your expectations which is what this is all about so once we kind of went down that road and created a ref that had stability we had to understand why that was happening in the first place then create a ref that has stability wrap in a callback and then We had it working and then it was cool. It is cool that you can just basically copy and paste those like eight lines of gunk, put it in like a use timeout hook. And now I can just call use timeout, use my timeout and pass in a callback and boom, it's going to work as I would have expected set timeout to work. And so... There's an argument there, which is like, right, hooks are these lower level things, but they let you build the higher level things. And once you have the higher level things, then people's violate expectations won't be violated. They won't hit these, quote, edge cases because like, that's going to take care of it. First of all, if that's true, then they should be honest about that. I mean, they kind of are honest about that, but like, the reality is when you talk about the benefit, when the announcement came out and you read the guides, they're not talking about, okay, so like, they take, the core hooks take care of these cases once when you run into these cases you won't be able to do what you think with just these but the you know what i'm saying they could have been more honest about that i think or like yeah it's it's like there's a missing piece but it's supposed to be it's like a low level thing that lets you build the medium level things that you need to actually just like be productive without running into these edge cases but that middle piece is like not there it's like left up to the community yeah i mean maybe there is like
1: a, a community solution here that is takes time right running into these cases with hooks but something does emerge that's that's you know react hook library and we get right a, a timeout function right. from that an interval right. function the thing that kind of rubs me the wrong way about that is like as a javascript developer i expect set timeout to work.
0: I know, but you said something good. You were like, if Ember tells me, like, the way to update state is, like, calling this.set, and then I need to use this.get, like, I'm just going to do that, and I'm never going to run an issue, and that's fine. And I don't care. I I don't care. You because Ember is telling me what to do. Yeah, so exactly. it's not, I'm not going to
1: get a bee in my bonnet.
0: Yeah, you'd rather just be told what to do and not run into bugs. Whereas if you tell me this is just JavaScript, and then I try to do just JavaScript and it doesn't work as I expect, and then you tell me, oh, but you weren't thinking about this right. That's going to bother me. So I'd rather... I'd rather have one or the other, right? I'd rather either have, um, here's where it works, and here's where you still have to think about it. Or um, React is uses JavaScript, but then there's some parts of JavaScript that are fundamentally kind of misaligned with the the way we do declarative rendering in React. And so, when you have to do asynchronous things, do it like this. When you have to call set timeout or set use this instead, it's fine. You know, yep. And then you also get benefits. It's not like oh, why are we doing that? Like JavaScript already has that. Well, he shows in his blog post, like this great example of how you like the timeout with like the use interval, you can like change the interval and like connect it to like a slider and you can change it and it is always in sync. So it's like the effect is in sync with the state. That's like a beautiful thing. Set so that timeout is not capable of that. You have to write that yourself. So if that was included, that's like a huge benefit. Right yeah. Now. It's cool. Yeah. Super cool. But, um, for you to understand that, maybe it's just because we're new to it, also. But like, I think there's it's it's confusing. No,
1: I mean, I, I'm no. yeah, I've googled these yeah. things we run into, and the the Stack Overflow answers are just you know, rewrite your app to to push all this state outside of your component. Yeah.
0: So that was another thing that you said, which was interesting, which is like people were saying, right? So you have state, and then you have some like asynchronous delayed callback, and it has stale state. What do you do? And like, yeah, you'll see answers that are like. We we spent the time this morning to figure out how could we have a how could we have let's say you come into a component that has a lot of state management stuff going on and you just wanna like log something in a second with the state with the latest value of state, you should be able to do that without you should be able to extend that component and do that without touching any of the existing state management. Whereas like the stuff you found was like, Oh well if you just passed it in it would always be or if it was in a Redux store it always be but like that's not a good answer. So yeah. um So there's a lot of confusion, I think, out there about it. So it's pretty interesting, though. But yeah, I like object uh, references and um, stable references. They buy you a lot, you know? Yes. They make certain things easy. They certainly can make things hard, too. But um, it's just not as one-sided as people make it sound, right? They're good for certain things, you know? Yep. Um, We... uh, uh, Let's, I guess we'll save the questions for the end, yeah. Sure. Torture people, make them listen through the whole episode. Right. Just ESPN website. Do you remember what that was about?
1: Oh yeah. <laughs> I was listening to a, a podcast with um a bunch of the folks that started the uh like started ESPN dot com and their vision for it and everything. And they were talking about um the I they they said the year, I don't remember. It might have been like two thousand two in 2000, something around there. Um, they had this vision of, of getting a bunch of newspaper writers to write for a website, which at the time was just like, that's crazy. Why would they go down to a website when they have this giant newspaper platform? <laughs> and one of the guys, I think like the main content guy was saying like, in order for this to be successful, we have to have um, beautiful sports images, we have to have great typography, custom typography. It has to look beautiful because we're going to have great writers writing. Um, and uh, he was saying that all that his tech team just complained about this. They said that like we can't do we can't do images. That's just like dial-up modems won't be able to load them. Um, you know, and I, I I just I just laughed at this because it's like we keep hearing these arguments right like okay mm-hmm. back then mm-hmm. they're absolutely worth they're absolutely a limiting factor right there absolutely were technical cons- constraints if you had a slow modem you couldn't load big images but yeah. like it turns out that like they were right like building a good yeah readable website requires these things and espn.com was super successful yeah um so they knew like they had like the, the product vision where you know and it just i just i just you know The whole performance thing. The whole so performance okay. thing. Yeah, so yeah, today, yeah. what is it? It's bundle size yeah, and, yeah, and all yeah. this. And it just made me think like, you know, like maybe this stuff doesn't, maybe the technical constraints aren't there and it's, you know, there are folks that are not thinking of these things, but they have a bigger vision mm-hmm. and
0: it might be okay to relax some of those technical constraints. Right. Like the conventional wisdom would say, if you make users wait, you know, eight seconds for your big website to load and you have like this big 3d interactive thing like you're just doing everything that's wrong with a modern web but you like have really have a, you have to have a performance budget <coughs> and yeah. it has to be 200
1: kb yeah but like it turns out like no like someone that is read that wants to read an article by like a famous national writer right like they're, they're okay waiting for an image right, to load, right, waiting right. for the typography to load So right. interesting yeah that's
0: good and i yeah that's just the product stuff is so important there and also like people always talk about like marketing or like news websites cnn.com and like you open it and it's like ads everywhere and pop-ups and like recipe websites are like the worst but that's not a bundle size thing that's like the their use of modals and and basically my point is it comes back to the user experience which is what you're saying yes. right and it's like yeah maybe that's what's important to consider Yeah, know?
1: just made me think like yeah like there there are certain situations where you do have a technical constraint and it does matter. Yeah. Um, but maybe, maybe not. you
0: make them up. People will self impose them. Yeah. Sometimes. Or maybe
1: you hear something from another group that says mm-hmm. 200 KB and you apply that to your website. Mm-hmm, but like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Early days, the of ESPN. Visions, com.
0: Visionaries. Are, 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 yeah. You're going to yeah. miss out on some of those. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> That's cool.
1: Uh, CSB React. Ah. So in doing a bunch of react uh one of the things that i found really cool was that in github issues uh people will post issues and then like the first reply from a maintainer is always do you have a code sandbox Oh, um, and then people set them up and it's it was it's been super helpful in learning also spectrum um and their like react testing library there's a whole just a whole bunch of code sandboxes there.
0: Yeah, you really been liking react yeah. testing library.
1: And you can like they like get embedded in the page and it's just like it, there's something about having like an example that you can play with that's not like a github repo that i have to pull down install run but like something i can just open the browser play with mm-hmm. see what they did. Mm-hmm. And that's something i'm really
0: really liking. It's like cool. really helping me learn this stuff. That's cool. So yeah,
1: code sandbox is um, it's really impressive. That's cool.
0: There was last time I checked, there was an Ember one, but it involved all Ember CLI. I think it would be good to have one that was basically more like Ember Twiddle. Yeah, I and set, we have Twiddle, but Twiddle is not Code Sandbox, so it'd be nice to have a Code Sandbox version that's like not right. Twiddle gets in, you into trouble because Twiddle runs in the browser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you lose. I, so you lose the whole Ember CLI build step thing. But if you wanted something without that, I think the code, the React versions. Getting the, the the boilerplate ones are just the client-side version. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, they just run in the browser. Yeah, There's yeah, no... Yeah. So that's um, fine. That's not the problem with Twiddle is that it runs in the browser, right? The problem is that it's... No, no, no. It runs in the browser,
1: so it loses all the file system yeah. stuff yeah. that is so common with Ember add-ons yeah, and Ember, yeah, yeah. Ember apps. So maybe we would like... But I'm would, saying
0: it would still be good if you wanted to show off Ember animated to be able to run it in a code sandbox but not have ember cli yes. and just as a quick thing the way that the react demo works because you could do that with ember it's just that it's not okay, can you well like the script tag version or whatever like okay, the maybe. old version of ember that can you do that yeah though? i mean you should be able to i guess it did like compile the template but you can have the template compiler run in the browser it would just be nice if we had that because it would be a faster thing right it's like you don't uh, last time i tried to start a new ember code sandbox it was like Basically, didn't work. It like timed out, it didn't work. It's like trying to run all of Ember CLI is too much.
1: I set one up for a storefront and I would share it with people. And when I loaded it, I would have to reload it a few times to so get it to work. And yeah. it would work for a few hours. Yeah, yeah, and then exactly. I'd share it, and the person would have to, they would have to reload it a few See, times. So that's themselves. an example
0: where we don't need Node, we don't need NPM. You just need to like, you need to load storefront's code, but it could be from like a, in a script tag pointing to unpackage. And that's it. You don't need the code sandbox itself to rebuild anything if it can do it on the client. I wonder if Ember has, is tied
1: into Ember CLI. The whole yeah. Ember workflow is tied in enough yeah. to Ember CLI that you actually need Ember
0: CLI. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It would be nice to have it to work. Yes. So it would make it feel better. Yeah. Sure. But yeah, it's really cool. It's really cool.
1: It's something. It's like, man, like definitely for storefront too. Like having this and being able to share code yeah. would, would be awesome. Yeah, totally.
0: Hey everyone. So I wanna take a quick break to thank uh, a sponsor for this week's episode. It's actually our first sponsor of the show and that is TrueCoach. And TrueCoach is actually hiring Ember developers. I got a chance to sit down with Alex Ford, their lead front end engineer. And I wanted to share a bit of that conversation with you so you can hear about what they're looking for. Cool man, what's the weather like over there? It's lovely. Just got into the 80s. Wow. And it's late June. So tell me about the positions that you all are hiring for right now.
2: We are um, looking to hire positions for our web team. So we're looking for Rails engineers, we're looking for Ember and JavaScript engineers.
0: What's the main thing that the app does? What does it it look like and who uses it?
2: We provide a, a workout builder and a set of templates for you to create programs that you can assign and individualize for your client. And a client typically works from a mobile device, right? Mm-hmm. I'm a client, I'm in a gym, probably have spotty Wi-Fi, if any Wi-Fi whatsoever, and um, open up the app and I have a list of say, you know, seven or eight workouts to do that day with demo videos and do them, maybe record myself, message my coach, Hey, here are my results. This was super hard. I'd like to try this. And so we're really trying to solidify the communication gap and the feedback cycle between a coach and a client
0: what would be one of the first things that a new ember dev on the team would be working on
2: we really love to start engineers off with testing i'm hoping that by the time somebody starts we get to focus on something from scratch mm-hmm. a brand new feature we're looking at volume tracking which means like tracking sets reps weight tempo and nutrition tracking third-party integrations with say health kids and My Fitness Pal.
0: Wow, you weren't kidding about the feature list that you all have.
2: We just want to build application code. (laughs) Ember has solved so many of those hard problems for us that we can just really focus and hone in on that.
0: That's so cool. Tell me a
2: little bit about what
0: it's like to work at True Coach.
2: We hire honest and transparent people um, who love building a product and who are customer centric but don't take themselves too seriously. Our co-founders are so bought into Ember, which for an Ember dev is fantastic. And they wanna to continue to grow our Ember team, which is one of the more ambitious parts of of our platform, of our app suite.
0: Tell me a little bit about some of the actual, the people that you work with. I, you know, I know Casey, actually cool story about TrueCoach, which used to be called FitBot. Casey, the the co-founder who was the original ember engineer on the app i still remember one of the first kind of big companies that for me was big of someone using mirage in their ember app and that was fitbot and casey and he kind of sent me a twitter message saying you know this was like soon after like mirage first came out and he was like Fitbot is an Ember app that uses Mirage. And I was like, what? And I like went to the website and I looked, I was like, this is real. Like, I can't believe that. It's so cool. And that's oh, kind of oh, how cool. I yeah. first met uh, Casey. And, um, you know, ever since we've we've hung out at the Ember comps. And last year I got to hang out with all you all. And uh, we had we had lunch together and it's it was an awesome team. So, yeah, why don't you talk about some of the, the actual people you work with?
2: One of my favorite people to work with is Emily. She was our... Um, our second Ember hire. It, it, was, it was so obvious that we need to hire her immediately um, <laughs> because of how great of a person it is and her, her product knowledge just right out of the bat. And it's, some, it's someone who just picked up Ember, having known React from code school, and just really ran with it. Worked on it for probably about a year and a half and then jumped over to um, the React Native app.
0: That's really cool, and I also think it's a testament to y'all's culture because not everyone who is fresh out of a boot camp can be successful at every job. There's lots of places that aren't set up for those kinds of people to be successful. So that tells me a lot about um, how y'all are supporting each other, supporting new hires, and um, the fact that someone can work there for you know multiple years and grow. In their own career at one place, I think, it's pretty unique these days. And the whole yeah. team is there in Boulder.
2: We are, yeah. We're we're all here in Boulder, we're looking to hire in Boulder, in Colorado. Um, we've got a few folks who live in Denver. If you're um, into more of a bigger city scene, and we've got a flexible work from home policy, um, which tends to work really well for our team right now. So it's really cool being in Colorado right now. At the Dinosaur JS conference, there was an electricity. It really feels like an emerging tech market.
0: If folks are interested and want to learn more about the job posting, where should they go?
2: I think just check out bit.ly slash truecoachdev. That's going to link you to our engineering culture. If you think that sounds interesting, there's a link below. Just click the we're hiring link. Yeah, check it out.
0: Awesome. We'll make sure to link that in the show notes as well. Alex, thanks so much for your time. And I look forward to seeing you again at at, uh, maybe Emmerconf next year
2: appreciate you having
0: me on. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. That's him. I have this thing here about, um, I was trying to remember what was happening when I wrote this down. I've seen teams spend one week getting Webpack set up. I've seen things you people wouldn't even believe. Um, it was when we were working on this roll-up. Now that we've extracted Mirage server to a vanilla JS package, the question is how can people use of that you realize how much work goes in the ember ecosystem to make that thing sort of thing easy um but now that it can be used in all we've been pairing with people and using mirage in like react apps and view apps and so um you need to provide like a version of it that works in different situations and so we've been learning all about roll up and all this stuff and it's been painful (coughs) but um I think something that I used to think was true was that it's good to have other people do all that stuff for you. But now getting to a point where we're working on this thing in the wider ecosystem, I was kind of frustrated that I didn't, I had never really set up Babel myself. I had never really set up ESLint myself. Um, There's so much about NPM that I haven't, I've been able to avoid. Basically, there's so many of those things that I haven't had to learn, which is great. Um... Because uh, basically the Ember ecosystem has sheltered me from that and like in a good way that other people have taken on those responsibilities and it's made it, my life a lot easier. Except that now it's like those things aren't truly abstracted away from modern JavaScript development. So now that we have to learn them, you feel like you have to catch up in a lot. You feel like there's like four years. Of yeah.
1: Yeah. Of like <laughs> of JavaScript you have to learn.
0: Yeah. Oh, why is UMD a lie? Why is um, why does Rollup exist when um webpack exists, like they're both module bundlers, bundlers, like why do they both exist and why are people using both of them? What's the boundary between these yeah, tools, yeah? And then like the overlap between, yeah, when you have when you're using just Babel, roll up eslint and then you have packages that are uh eslint Babel, just eslint, just eslint runner, just Babel, um, roll up babble plugin, right? So every every there's like the shortest path between all of them you have a (laughs) new package for each one of them and um i think um well it's hard right i was listening like i was listening to the uh bike shed podcast from thoughtbot and they're talking about rails and magic in rails and chris was saying that you know when he started he really appreciated the magic because it let him feel really productive but over time he's grown to like wish for more explicitness because when the magic doesn't work and you have to dive into it you have this feeling that i have felt it's good to feel that sometimes because you just it's not a good feeling but uh, there's definitely a trade-off there he's like maybe rails could just generate some code and like put it in there instead of like trying to hide it all away from you right Mm-mm-mm. but um yeah it's just a hard trade-off right
1: it's interesting because part of a part of me wants to say like yeah just stay in number. Just stay in Ember and never. Yeah, Pardon me, wants to say that and too. And never deal, <laughs> and never ever deal with you, any of these problems. You don't have to, right? yeah. You don't. Right. I, but I think there's an interesting thing. It's like, well, the reality of being a JavaScript developer today means that you have to. You there will be times
0: where you're outside of Ember. Yeah, and also like if Ember cares about staying relevant and wants to grow its user base, then that's not a good thing because we've seen that Ember is not. Um, Ember is already needing to make changes to meet. Modern JavaScript developers, where they're at. And so that's, it's just not true that there's enough folks who have bought into the Ember vision to like self sustain it on its own. We want more people to use Ember. Ember Ember wants more people to use Ember. So if it were true that like the current set of Ember developers was all anyone working on Ember cared about, then you could make that argument, but that's not true. You know what I'm saying? I mean, couldn't, well, like, couldn't an answer here be if you're just making Ember Ember for current Ember users, that's fine, but you're not. Couldn't the answer be like,
1: Look, one of the great things about Ember is you don't ever have to know these tools. So, yeah. so quit your job and start writing Ember and never open one of these configs again. But but I... I yeah, that's true. I'm, especially after going through what we went through yeah. the last few weeks, I'm not sure that you can be a JavaScript developer and not know these tools. I think that, you know, companies have apps and... I mean, you can be an Ember
0: developer of, and not ever know how to set up Babel or ESLint.
1: Sure, but, but I think that, you know... There's something beautiful about that there are companies out there that they're not just ember they yeah, have sure. an ember app they have a view app yeah. they have a react app yeah. and so you can
0: be a web developer and not know how to set up a socket or something or something like that right so those like those things but this is the point right is that yeah. these things are not like these new tools that are coming out are not being abstracted away and hidden away from us you know yeah and i think there's whereas you could say rails like you could stay a rails developer and not know how to do something that uh a, a ruby server developer wouldn't have to know how to do sure you can be a rails developer and never deal with rack or something yeah exactly so that's fine but i don't think and i and, don't and it wouldn't be like irresponsible to tell someone oh you should be learning rack over time because eventually in your rails career like right that's not the same right, thing right. it's a different it's right. different
1: i think my take is more that that being a javascript developer means you're gonna have a whole bunch of different apps for reasons yeah. like
0: yeah JavaScript's way more dynamic it's using way more context it's it's moving faster it's it's, it's,
1: it's moving faster people yeah. at your organization even if you're like the diehard Ember
0: fan people in your organization are gonna introduce React apps and, Yeah Ember didn't win the framework wars right the framework wars are not over or right. whatever like there's still new ideas coming out we're not done building UI frameworks so given all those things whereas like is anyone gonna start a new Ruby on Rails like is anyone gonna start a new server side api framework in ruby so i mean, I mean may, yes <laughs> yes yeah you know what i'm saying right the the um rails is the last rails yeah and ember is not the last ui framework right reacts not the last ui framework right i would com- be, be confident saying um so anyways that's kind of interesting and um what was the point of all this? The point of all this is like... You're saying that like
1: you feel like it's almost a disservice to hide yes. these things. Yeah, because, almost, yeah. Because now you've felt unequipped right? that you've gone off into the, the big world. Right.
0: And also that there might be a way you end up with some incidental complexity when you try to hide these things from your users. So, for example, um, Ember CLI Tailwind. Builds Tailwind for your Ember app. But there's neat times where you need to do different things with it. For example, in add-on docs, we need to build a custom version of Tailwind that's scoped, uh, has a prefix, so we don't collide with people's names. So now Ember CLI Tailwind has to expose a Build Tailwind Broccoli plugin that you have to learn how to use, that I have to learn how to use, whatever right myself, you know. But um, other people can use it too. Point being, um, I wanted... You know when you make add-ons like that or when ember is working and trying to you know the, the the parallel is like ember is trying to um do the work of setting up babel and ESLint for its users um you are trying to make it so they don't have to learn that stuff but then you run into situations and so maybe it would have been better from the beginning like ember said I tell when i don't even understand how based on the use cases that people have now it I think that add-on shouldn't exist. So we're basically probably going to deprecate and teach people how to use the thing. Because if you set up Tailwind in a React or a Vue app, you just use the thing. It's PostCSS. So you have a PostCSS config file, and you wire it up. And so there's some work we can do, but at the end of the day, yeah, it's just back to like how fast can they get to the installation instructions on Tailwind's site and do it themselves? Because there's just so many benefits to that, right? First of all, like they're understanding the tool. If they go outside of Ember and they're like, want to make a view app and now they want to use tailwind They're like oh wait in ember i just have this one line command that i use to get tailwind in my app and it's awesome that that's one line command but at the same time it's the same thing that i'm going through right where they don't feel like okay how do i set this up now i have to do all this wiring and um you know what i'm saying i do and, and the wiring <laughs> thing is it might i think we talked about this before but the
1: wiring thing might be we might be over estimating the cost like, yeah uh, yeah because setting up just in a few projects yeah. it's like okay, I've got to copy and paste configs, but hey, everyone's doc site. They do a good job telling me just paste this in.
0: And this is where like back to the thing where especially folks in Ember community used to say like, you know, we've seen teams spend lots of time setting up Webpack config. And so that's like all wasted time. That's not really the right. It's not the full story because yeah, it's in some sense, it's wasted in other sense. They have a lot more flexibility in a year from now when everything's changed, whereas you don't, right? Right. So, um, again, it's trade-offs. But um, and to be fair to the Ember story, the Ember model, you know, the Magic model, it's true that Jest has good docs about copying config files in your apps. But what about when you use Jest and Babel and ESLint and Rollup? There's there's nowhere to go. Like we're looking at React routers github source and trying to understand that so that's not good that's not that's not in a guide somewhere so it's the interaction between these things that make things hard and it's again it's a huge testament to the infrastructure work that goes on in ember that we've been able to use you know ember concurrency with generators before generators worked and i've never had to set that up myself and now i'm having to like install a regenerator thing you know what i'm saying it's like dude, just the fact that we don't even think about how to build a test app like, yeah, the, our,
1: the tests for our app. We don't yeah. ever have to think about
0: that. ESLint automatically adds failing tests to it, to our app. Like, just there's so many things that are really, really pleasant, but it's like you just you got to meet people where they're at and you have to face the reality that people are working in a multi, they're working in this multi paradigm environment. And so your tools shouldn't try to replace that reality. They should work inside of it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Now, I wonder if this, like, Okay. Multi-paradigm reality.
1: Do we lose, like, one of the great things is, like, upgrading Ember has been easy. Right? Upgrading Ember yeah. apps
0: has... It's has, a good question. Do we lose things like that, that if we go down this road... Where the of, things, the dependencies aren't, like, working in concert with each yeah. other or whatever. Yeah, I have no idea. But I know that you have to meet people where they're at. Yes, to I mean, me, that's that. become, like, the number one thing. You can't sacrifice that. Um, and if people are like at a point where they're like I'm tired of doing all this stuff myself I want you to do it for me even if it means I'm a year or two behind the cutting edge then that's fine right but that's not what people are okay. saying exactly you know what I'm saying yeah also too that's totally been
1: I mean I know you've been struggling with this I get to do <laughs> the initial setup and I got to walk away when when the problem got hard um, yeah when our UMD build broke <laughs> ie <I-11. laughs> yeah. 11 yeah the setup hasn't been. I don't know how it all works. I don't know the boundaries. But it hasn't been the the big problem.
0: Yeah, oh 100%. No, it's like a pain in the ass for the last week or two, but no, it's going to be a thing that gets set up and we're going to learn. It's just that we're condensing our learning, but eventually we're going to learn it and it's, it's going to be fine. Yep. And it's also a good spot to be like flexible when new things come out and stuff. So. But yeah, basically all that to say like Amber tailwind in retrospect, it was it would have been better to invest the effort into making it as easy as possible. You know, like basically auto import is a better use of effort to make it easy for Ember to integrate directly with these packages than to try to wrap it and hide the magic and hide what's going on. I think that's like one way to put it.
1: Yeah, maybe using the Tailwind example, it's like, oh, it's really great. You Ember install Ember CLI Tailwind, you have Tailwind set up, you have rebuild set up, you have these configuration files, but then Tailwind 1.0 comes out and now like, Okay, you didn't pay a fixed cost of setting it up or you didn't pay a cost of setting it up, but now you that this is a flexibility that you've lost. Right. Right. And so that's a trade off. Right.
0: And like maybe it would be different if we were like completely laser focused on that. We were working at a TED or at something like that where we were all using that and we were maintaining it all the time. Yeah. I um, mean, maybe if there were, you know, a hundred thousand more Ember developers. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That, that the it, reality is it's right. It's not totally so right so that's the thing And it is, it's like yeah, meeting users there, Exactly <laughs> yeah exactly yep Yep so you Want to think about that you want to think About that stuff ahead of time you get an idea For something or you're trying to think about the best way To do something what happens when X changes what happens when someone wants to use a different Version of Pretender without what I'm using what Happens if they want to make this portable and use It elsewhere so it Goes back to all that kind of thing you know Yeah Scope all that stuff. Anyways, that's all I have to say about that. Hooks versus components, I guess that's what we were talking about. Yeah, I had one <coughs> one
1: comment on this. I was, um, did you see static Kit, Derek's yeah, mm-hmm, new thing? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, StaticKit.com? Is that? Yes. The? So it's like um, hooks for a React app. I think there's a just JavaScript version, but there's like hooks for a React app where you can build a form that just saves data to his website and it's a service. Um, mm hmm. I was looking at that and it was incredibly readable hmm and I was wondering does this have to do with like the hooks API mm. that he came up with it's just like I knew what was going on from just eight lines of code from or his samples it was you write your own HTML but you use a hook to get all the the um, behavior I guess is, is the term I was also I was using um, in an Ember app I was like adding an Ember add-on that did a whole bunch of stuff and it uses a component and you drop the component in the template and it just works. It like does all this stuff for the template. I didn't really know
0: what was going on mm. with that.
1: And it just, it made me think like so I was like. So you
0: like liked the hooks example in terms of how it disambiguates between what's his and what's yours. Yeah, I.
1: it was just, it was very clear what was going on where, where if you drop a component in a template from an add-on, you don't know what you're gonna, you don't know, it's like, is that like a tagless component? Is yeah, yeah, doing? yeah. Now yep. sometimes you're working with like, a a ui framework and you drop their their button component into your template and you don't care if that thing's a button tag or like a div with a span with a button all that you don't really care what that Mm -hmm. thing is but there's other times where this app that i was working on um i needed to know what the html being inserted was and it was it just made me think it was like yeah there are times
0: where yep the boundary the, the abstraction it's not clear yeah So it's just a little, you opt into a lot when you wrap something in a component. Yes. You're like, it's a big change. Yeah. And most potentially,
1: and most components are well behaving and you don't have to think about it. Um, but it was just, there was something really nice about his landing page.
0: I just knew that's good. I just knew exactly what's going to happen. I think it's a testament to the composability story hooks, which is like part of the reason for the whole design. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. That's cool. Very cool. Very cool. Um, there's something else I was going to say I can't remember, but let's get to the questions, yeah? Sure. So I think one of them was about, um, what was I going to say? I had a thought. I can't remember. One of them was uh, from Dave about fast food. Do you remember what it was? No. Okay. <laughs> I actually
1: didn't. I kind of scanned these, but I didn't want to look at them because I want to answer them here.
0: Just off the cuff? Yeah. Extemporaneous style? Um, <laughs> We've been using pair with tuple. It's pretty awesome. I would definitely recommend people check it out. Um, you can pair for free with someone who has an account. We have an account. Um, I know I used to use Screen Hero to pa- pair with Rob and other people in the Ember community. And I know <coughs> that people were sad when Screen Hero left because people are just generous in Ember and on Discord will jump on with people and pair with them. So I think I was trying to tell uh Ben, that that would be an awesome, not only good for him to get more exposure to companies and paying customers, but like good for open source people to have just a one click thing and you jump on. It's really cool. Yeah, they added video to it. It's really awesome. How is the pairing? The fact that it's made for pairing. Yeah. So I'm, I imagine like the keyboard sharing and mouse sharing is is good. <clears throat> yeah. Like when I go in and I do it and. I pair some people on Slack sometimes and you try to do it and then you try to alt tab. Oh wait, it doesn't work That's so bad. You know, some clicks are slow or it's, so, it, something. But it's like not, that. it's not made for pairing, yeah. which is a the frustrating thing right. about, about the Slack screen. Share. Right, right, right. So tuple is you click on it, you're in it, you just see a red box around your screen that goes away and you're like, it's like full screen mode basically. And you, you know, you can just click, you want to point something out, you just click on it and you start typing and you can alt tab. You can do a mode where they can see your mouse so, like, you know how when you and I pair, we're looking at the same thing and you can just like use the mouse. Sometimes it's just really nice to use the mouse to point out something. You can do that on their monitor. So, yeah, it's oh, really cool. It's like a subtle thing. It's really, really cool. Um, so, there's also little things like that that are optimized for like the pairing use case. So, I love that. I, yeah. I mean, there's
1: something so nice about where this is a problem we're solving screen share for pairing.
0: Yes. Yep. So, that's definitely really cool. I think they're going to open it up to public, um, like, either in, in August at some point. Nice, but um, yeah, we're trying to do more pairing with, getting, seeing what Mirage is like in like other apps and stuff. So, um, I tweeted about this, and I have been doing some calls, and I have some more set up. But if anyone is listening and wants to try Mirage out in a non Ember app, who's listening, send me a message, and we can set that up too. So Dave said, um, one of our biggest lessons so far using Ember Fast Boot is that Fast Boot or server-side rendering in general really, makes bugs that were previously isolated to the one user by virtue of executing on their browser only suddenly a problem for all users everywhere. Fastboot is actually pretty good at isolating well-behaved app code in the Fastboot environment, but it can't escape the underlying Node.js reality, which is that it's sharing system resources. All of a sudden, any kind of resource contention bug becomes a problem for every user, not just the one who experienced it. Those kind of bugs move from hmm, we should take a look at those roll bar logs this week to production is on fire and the site is unusable. <laughs> <laughs> Sound familiar? Yeah, that's... Um,
1: <laughs> is there more is that? That's it, yeah. That's really great. That's, that's absolutely true. I mean, this is memory leaks in an Ember app. I tend just not to care about because
0: people refresh the page. Right, yeah, but refresh Twitter, right? Yeah. I mean, Twitter bugs is buggy and I just refresh it. But
1: that's not true on our server. Our server isn't going to refresh. Yeah, yeah. So those memory leaks. Memory leaks are one of the things that, that mm-hmm. really bit us when we first got into Fastboot. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, what did we do to solve it? Up the memory?
1: <laughs> no, so we we have something
0: that. Um, there was a point in time where we like really changed it because what we originally had was good, but it was tiny. Yeah. It was your like whole thing like Ember is made to run on like a modern MacBook. Yes. Yes, and that's not what our servers are No, our servers
1: 512 megabytes. I think we're up to like a gig now. Yeah. So yeah, we probably did up it what we do. Um, so to answer this is one, th- one thing we do. Well, we no longer run fastboot r- at runtime, right? But when we did run fast, boot at runtime, we had um, an express middleware called worker killer. So fast boot app server, or, or if you write your own app server node, you're going to spawn off worker instances to handle those requests. And the whole idea is if like a worker in, uh, encounters an error it's not gonna take down your the, your process isn't gonna crash the worker is gonna crash the parent process I think they call it like the master process is just gonna spin up a new worker so your your thing doesn't go down now your workers mm. might like crash might get spun up again you might get like in a bad spot there but your your thing isn't gonna your app server is never gonna die um, on account of
0: trying to generate a fast boot page right
1: your workers might die right right but right. the actual
0: app server itself won't
1: so we have a thing called worker killer where it, all of our workers, when they boot up, they get a random number between 100 and 200. And when they serve that many requests, they die. Mm. And the idea is that like the master process should like load balance between the workers. I think we run like four workers. So the idea is like, you know, one does one, the other does one, the other does one, then two, 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 then three three, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, so we don't want to just stop all the workers after they've served hundred requests because then they would like kind of all go down at mm-hmm. once. So we generate a random number mm. after you've served that many requests the master process actually the child process is told like you will exit once you've served 150 requests and it's going to die and then spin up. So that's like a way to like kind of like build in a refresh to your server rendered. Right, a, right, right. To your server rendered app. Turn off and on again. Yeah. Yeah. And seriously, <laughs> yeah. turn it yeah. off and on again. So that that's worked well. Huh. Um, you know, cleaning up memory leaks in the Ember app was also kind of helped there. Mm-hmm. But like definitely it's yeah. It's you really wanna, good. Like you, you yeah. do share. Yeah. Like when you're writing an Ember app, you're thinking about the app running on the user's browser. single user session yeah.
0: in the context of their device
1: yeah yeah you're not thinking about the shared thing yeah on yeah, the server yeah. so um yeah definitely yeah just like restart monitoring it restarting it monitoring was like um insightful insightful also too like there's a thing now like about like observability which is super interesting so like you can like monitor your app so you have like you track like memory usage and requests and and all this data about your fastboot instance but um like when you encounter a fastboot bug, like how do you actually go ahead and fix it? And the idea is like, well, I try to like recreate the scenario locally, but that's like, you know, our dev environment, like Ember CLI fastboot is very different than fastboot app server. Mm -hmm. So like recreating your production environment locally, there's like a lot of steps involved. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so like you can look at the logs, maybe the logs will tell you something but generally you're like, you're just trying to figure out what went wrong, like mm-hmm. recreate that scenario in like Ember CLI fast boot. Like sometimes you're like setting up a new app server and like poking around. Maybe you're like deploying code with like console logs because mm-hmm. you know that this part of the page crashed. Um, I think good question is like how, given that you're running an Ember app on the server and you run into like bugs, how could you have found this bug you just fixed? Without having to deploy new code, mm-hmm. without having to pull the code down, and it's not just about like logging memory usage or requests or stuff like that. Like, what 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 could you actually do to know to know what this bug was? And I think if you like start to do that a few times, you'll um, I think you like make your code base more robust. Mm. Um, so like one thing we did is like we have like a viewer. I have a viewer where I can view all the HTML. That fastboot generated so when i get like a, a crash i can actually go in and see the html mm. from that response i also get other things like i get like um all the headers that were sent so i can see like the user agents and and anything that might have just tripped up ember because we I do see. some like some header introspection um i also get like request time and so i can follow requests but like this this sort of stuff like when I started doing fast boot, I didn't have any of this. Right. And so this was a stuff like built up to, to monitor this. So Right. Interesting. Yeah.
0: Also, I think that you would say, um, if you were talking to someone or giving kind of your opinion, your advice, um, first question is like, why are you introducing fast boot? And then second, like if we don't even run fast, boot at runtime, you know, um, basically if you were starting a new app today and it had to be Ember and you had some need that, for server-side rendering what would your approach be given what we've learned with fastboot also with our experience with gatsby yeah I, I i mean i would have
1: to know like it's exactly what you said why are we running fastboot why do we need server-side rend- rendering and there's a giant and if it's for speed there's then a giant decision tree there yeah um yeah for speed but it depends pro- It depends. Not, is there right. a lot of there's dynamic pro- content yeah 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 um, how,
0: how fresh does the content have to be how, has it change yeah stuff i'm
1: happy with where we went, where we
0: ended up where we have a
1: cache mm-hmm. with dynamic data the mm-hmm. cache resets but we don't have a lot of like what are, like user generated data in right. there so like github imagine if like <laughs> github was cached every time someone signed up they'd have to like cache they'd have to create a new page um, right of that person's profile where we don't have that
0: problem right so um serving faster from cache like works great for us right and we could apply a lot of the lessons from Gatsby to a site like Ember Map that changes a handful of times a week, and it would be a huge benefit. Like it would be it would be massively more simple.
1: Yeah, I think that you know when we built Ember Map, if Gatsby was around, that would definitely
0: you know I mean it's listen it's if, Ember, prem, it's, if it, Prember it, if Prember was around, we would try to see if that would be a similar kind of experience where we could just do a static generation um, to give us server rendered uh, pre rendered pages on the server. Um, using our, our ember code but that way
1: yeah the problem with prember why prember doesn't work for us is because we still need information about the incoming request so we we need to know like is this user an admin well is that would also be a problem
0: for gatsby
1: yes so we would have but we to, could
0: do a lot with our site without knowing that stuff we we could build it in such a way well first of all the real reason we did it in the first place was to literally get OG tags. OG tags, so we could do that with pre No Problem. You could just have a part of the block, part of the temp, the only part that you render. Be the OG tags, yes. yeah. I mean, we could do this. And then we would build up over time yes. to get more and more of the content in the pre-rendered side. You know, I think I went down this road with Fastboot where I was just gonna have it do that, and it like, I just
1: ran into all these problems where.
0: I mean, it's nice what we have now, I gotta say. It's just cost you two years of blood, sweat, and tears. From my perspective, it's great that um, we can have like three versions of the site rendered for our different ca- classes of users. I mean, it's fast. It's like it loads fast, really mm-hmm. fast. It's awesome. It, the cache busts automatically when I make an edit in our admin. Like, it's awesome. But um, so I'm just saying the the, the the walking the line between the full Gatsby model, which is fully built time dependent, has no access to those kind of dynamic runtime. Now, right. you could do the same thing and you could make user buckets and make different GraphQL requests in yes. your you know based on those. generate three HTML yeah, files exactly. per page. Yeah, exactly.
1: I think server rendering is tough. Like, I, yeah,
0: it's also like, is it worth it? You know, uh, um, uh, something I'm going to want to do with Mirage, which I'm curious when we get there because I do want to do this, is um, replicate our data modeling stuff with uh, with Ember CLI Mirage and uh, add-on docs rather and Ember Data because. I think for a documentation page, it makes sense to load the whole thing on the first request basically and have it synchronously available. Like that just seems like, it seems like a perfect use case. Again, when I was on the airplane and I load the doc site, it should be offline. Like that stuff is actually a pretty uh, reasonable to want that in a doc site. And I just think it's better than like, yeah going back and forward and searching all that being like synchronous and instant like on the site so and it shouldn't be that hard. it's just not that conceptually it's not that hard, right. We've done it a million times now, so we should be able to do it with our Gatsby site and our react site where like we query query all the data needed or whatever so um I'm just curious how that's gonna work, but um, I forget why I said that I think it will work well. Sorry, I was saying <laughs> the reason I even said that right then is because we were talking about like server rendering and server rendering is hard and stuff and sometimes it's not worth it. And I know like Ryan Florence, other folks have said like it's just like really complex. I agree. Like runtime server rendering for a client app is like super complex. And to me, it's even better if I have to wait a second or whatever whatever and in the worst case, but then I get your entire site and it's instant backyard uh, uh, yes. blog example or whatever it is, right? Yeah, yeah. Um so I'd rather I'd rather build that. And, and give up the server rendering stuff except for the og tags or whatever but like i don't really care about you know what i'm saying like it's good to server render but if i had to choose one or the other
1: again but again i think this <clears> is <throat> like what what problem are you solving you're solving My, the problem of like i want i have a doc site yeah. i want it to be really fast yeah. to navigate and yeah, i don't people
0: pull it up all the time i don't like i don't it,
1: care about you know a second to load yeah exactly and so yeah server rendering is and not the data good.
0: changes you know once every whatever release yeah. you know basically right um which is like maybe a, maybe a couple of times a week or something like right. that. So right. to me, it's like I'd rather have the whole thing, load up all the API documentation in memory, have React render everything in memory, um, have it be instant back and forward, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, to me, that's like that's 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 worth giving up the server. That, I would rather invest effort in that than than the server rendering. Yeah. Although I mean, we get server rendering for free with Gatsby, which is cool, free. I mean, mostly free. We have to like adjust some things, but basically it's done for us, so that's also pretty cool. But once you're in one of those pages i just want to stay in the react app yes and 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 even for the api stuff like just do the full api load the whole payload up front boom
1: yep i don't i mean yeah. i don't see anything wrong yeah. with that like yep. i totally yep. don't cool
0: let's see if there's any more questions we should get to i'm tired today i'm still recovering from Watching this horror movie. Wait, it's not a horror movie. Midsummer. If anyone catches me at a conference and saw the movie Midsummer by Ari Aster, and wants to talk about it, please do. Because Ryan won't watch these movies with me. Nope. Um, do 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 do. Uh, there was a, a oh yeah relays principles for declared data fetching. Maybe we can talk about that some other time. Also oh I was thinking this API article APIs are about policy maybe like next podcast episode we can just read that together and talk about it yeah that'd be awesome i mean really because like there's a lot of really interesting stuff in there it's about rest it's about graphql i think it would be interesting to do that nice um new javascript features uh coalesce operator and stuff like that i guess we should look into that stuff and maybe we can talk about it next time because there's some like the um the coalesce what is that and then the question or the the um or question mark thing was it or question mark? It was like I think it was like question mark, question mark. Is that right? Where it's it does uh, the thing that Getify was tweeting about, remember?
1: Yeah, it's like you can do you know how like okay, you know how you write a function that takes options and you want to provide a default default options? Yes. So you do like let um if, lo- like mm-hmm. local options equals passed in options pipe pipe like or or mm-hmm. and then The default options, Mm -hmm. and that Mm -hmm. way, that if no one passes in options, you'll use the default options. Um, That works well, but you get into some spots with it where, like, uh, what if they pass in false?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. So now
1: they're always they've they've declared they want false logging right. But you uh, you have to do like it fails undefined. Yeah, you're like you. I know in storefront we do like some has own property stuff, Mm -hmm. and like we're just we're just trying to figure out like it's did they pass in nothing or did they pass in false? Yeah. Um, And so I think the question mark, question mark operators is basically like um, looks for undefined Mm. and only undefined or it looks for null and only null, something like that. But uh, that's pretty cool. But it will, if they, if you do like false question mark, question mark, true, it will return false
0: because the thing is, is actually set to false. Right. Um, So that, yeah, that's cool. So yeah, maybe we'll we'll look up some other ones and see what, new things are coming down last question was just about web components um we talked a little bit about this last week um my impression from the twitter sphere and the people i talked to is that everyone feels about the same as they did four years ago which is that um yeah there's some use cases for web components if you're in a big company that has like react and ember and view apps um to share some of that stuff but most people are going to keep most of their logic in the components of the native framework because of um, all the benefits that you get from that. So like the interop. Yeah, exactly. Didn't you didn't you look into this? Oh, like a while ago, like a couple of years ago. But for Glimmer.
1: Yeah. It wasn't the idea if you, we were going to use a web component, we'd have to like do it in JavaScript.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um this goes back to like attributes versus properties and do the frameworks have ways of like doing that? Yeah. There was like some things you'd only do via JavaScript Add event listener was a big one of them. Actually. That's like the best. That's why it's great that we have on now, but like, I don't know where the other frameworks are in that, but that's a good way for like custom events. Like if you have a form and you, or, and you want to emit a custom event, that's like did save so that anyone can hook into, because in, if you made a form and react and you have like, exposed like a did save callback then you can use that but how do you do that in a way that like an ember developer can do you know action did save or whatever on on did save you have to use like add event listener is the javascript way to do that and it works everywhere because it's just javascript custom events and all but again this is all just like people theorizing and no one's doing this today so that would be interesting if all the um frameworks did that that was the idea with like the glimmer component compiling to a web component and saying that the lowest common denominator is at event listener i think it's also what like polymer does or suggests or the web component guys suggest is like yeah if you just do this then like anyone should be able to do this because this is like base platform level apis and um but no one i don't see people really doing this now there's this really cool library stencil that is coming from uh, i think some guys who worked on one of these angular um ui frameworks i i really like i really like the people who work on this and i, I follow them on twitter um and i just really like um kind of some of their talks that i've seen and, and the way they they conduct themselves and, and and some of the yeah ionic framework um um and uh, i think this is about building reusable javascript web components and i think they compile down to web components like actual standards-based web components that run everywhere and it's basically intended to be used in like if you have a react app and a Vue app you could use your stencil ui library in both places but are people using this no one i know i mean it looks like a big project obviously but like yeah that's just this is not like a javascript wide thing that everyone's doing right? right this is like their take on how to share Component code across. It's kind of what Glimmer was maybe trying toying with being two years ago when we were working on this.
1: If I if I have
0: one of these components and I want to attach a click handler to it, That's six thousand stars.
1: It's a lot. If I have if I have one of these components, I want to attach a click handler to it. My
0: if I'm working in <clears> a React <throat> app or an Ember app. If you're in an Ember app, I think on would actually work because on, on would work. Yeah, so okay. it, which is pretty awesome. Like you could okay, literally render it like that's really cool. Yeah, you could material um accordion on close like on close and it's like a close is a custom native event that because, it emitted because what on is going to do is
1: on when it evaluates is going to actually call add event listener yeah. on that element that it's inside of. yeah
0: okay that's cool is not neat but it's with, super neat
1: okay so that wait so that that argument that makes me feel better about using web components
0: yes number have. um to-do list event to do completed event emitter the code above will dispatch a custom DOM event called to-do completed. Um, uh, listen detector, do-do-do-do-do, target, do-do-do-do-do, passive capture, keyboard events. Using events in JSX. Um, within a stencil com- within a stencil compiled application or component, you can also bind listeners to events directly in JSX. This works very similar to normal DOM events such as on click. Let's nice. use our to-do list component from above. Um, on to do completed. So that's, they have a compiler that will build you a JSX version. That, that's, 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 okay, that's what I was missing. That's what they're doing. Listening to events from a non JSX uh, uh, element. And then they show an example to do list element, document query selector to do list, add event listener to do completed. So it's, they have to make an, an exception for JSX. And so they have a specific code path in their compiler that will return you a, um, uh, a, a version okay so this is what you have to do so is it like they you have compile. to use our come class from above and you import event and event emitter you have to do something you have to do something you have to use this event emitter thing but basically like you have to do something because because react has its own like synthetic events model like on click is not just sugar for add event listener click it's like actually doing react's own event stuff so this was like one of the original arguments that like this is going to come back to byte react because they're not they they fundamentally don't interop with but you know no one it doesn't really matter because react is solving problems in other ways that people care more about but that is a cool aspect of things like view and ember i think because they use templates that are like supersets of html and work with native events I think rendering a stencil component in an Ember template and adding a custom event handler would would feel really cool. And it would work just the way we do it with like click on a button. So that's pretty awesome. That's really cool. Yeah. Also, too, if there was just an extra compile step to get the JSX web compatible version. Yeah, that's fine. Especially if they're like maintaining it and that's part of their value proposition. So, yeah. Yeah, because, okay. So without that, you end up
1: writing a whole bunch of JavaScript
0: yeah, you still have to use their thing. You do, There were always like two lines of JavaScript there where you have to in- import their thing and do it to make it so that it works. You would import that into your React yes, component? Yes, yes. So what that's that, a yeah. bummer. It's, it's, that's it is a bummer. bummer, yeah. It is a bummer, yeah. It is. So, But you have to do that because because there's no way to call add event listener on a element rendered by React because it's not an element. It's like a call to React create element and it's like reconciled in the virtual DOM. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah so kind of interesting though anyways i don't know why the person was asking about web components to me they're like an interesting thing to kind of keep your ear open to how they develop but they're not something that i see any of the teams we consult with any of the people asking us questions um are using for anything practical like they're not interested in solving the problems that the other frameworks are solving um in a lot of ways Um, there's obviously been like some historical hostility kind of between those camps and by and large like again the people the kind of circles that we run in like people are using frameworks to build their applications and so they're not really concerned with web web components at this point
1: yeah the only time we've (laughs) ever I've ever considered it is when you need to share code across two different frameworks right Um,
0: and even then we didn't didn't, yeah we we didn't do it yeah um, yeah. yeah. All right. So maybe next week we can talk about APIs. We what need to build APIs. HTTP APIs. We or, need a, or, yeah, a- yeah, okay. yeah 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 HTTP The rest the article about REST and GraphQL. Let's do that. Yeah. Maybe we talk.
1: can maybe we can put that in uh, the show notes
0: so people can read it ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. Be a read along. Yep. that's great. Papers we love. There's like this um, meetup group and an organization called Papers We Love. Talks about reading academic papers. And oh, cool. We'll do a mini version of that. All right. That's it.